This is episode number 415 with Head of Data Science at the Customer Journey Division at Mass Mutual, Osie Ohani. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you on the show. Today, we've got a very interesting guest, Osie Ohani, uh, who combines a background in academia, a very deep background in academia, and her current profession in the world of data science in industry. And this podcast is interesting because we spoke about both, and it will be useful uh, really for all levels, whether you're a beginner, you're an advanced data scientist, or you're a, a manager or a data science leader. And the reason is because at the beginning of the podcast, we talked a lot about her academic background and um, her career, like her progression through there. And uh, we touched on some interesting technical topics. For instance, uh, you'll learn about brain-computer interface and uh, some of the research that she was doing there, what kind of uh, tools uh, she was using. Uh, we talked about um, the curse of dimensionality. We touched on kernel analysis, classification theory. Uh, you'll hear about signal processing. Uh, we'll talk. We've also we also talked about quite inten intensely or quite deeply about stochastic versus deterministic uh, signals. So quite a few interesting things to pick up. Even if you're quite advanced already in data science, you might hear about some new uh, areas that you could add to your uh, toolkit. And then we moved on to discussing academia versus industry and why she made, why Asia made the move to industry. And then we moved on to discussing her career path, how her career developed and which, which is very impressive how she has progressed through her career. And uh, we talked about topics such as uh, being an individual com contributor in data science versus being a leader. What is it, what it is like to be a manager in data science and how to lead a team of 13 people, uh, some of the pros and cons of management in data science. Uh, you'll find out how data science divisions can be structured, for instance, in the example of Mass Mutual. Uh, also, uh, a heads up, ASIA is hiring uh, at her division. So in this podcast, you'll find out how you can apply for a position, and that's specifically for advanced data, scientist, data scientists. Um, they're looking for somebody to join the team. And at the end of the podcast, we touched on a very important topic, women in data science, and you'll be able to find out uh, some advice uh, from Asia and uh, things that you can do to help data science be more, even even more inclusive. And, uh, and we've got a cool podcast coming up with lots of topics. Can't wait to get started. So without further ado, I bring to you Head of Data Science of the Customer Journey Division at MassMutual, Osea Ohani. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today we've got a special guest calling in from New York, uh, Osie Ahani. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Welcome to the show, Osie. Thank you very much. Yes, it was correct. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Well, excited to have you on the show. Um, how's New York these days? Is it is it like, we already talked a bit about coronavirus. Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it like, a how's the weather? How's the winter going? Yes, it is getting cold, which is sad because the city was on lockdown in the summer, so we couldn't really enjoy the warm weather. Mm, mm. <laughs> so it's sad that it's getting cold, but I like fall. So mm. <laughs> I see you've got a lot of plants uh, in your house. You you like to have a lot of nature inside. <laughs> yes, there's not much nature outside, so you have to compensate for that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and uh, are you far away from Central Park? I am. I live in financial district, so uh -huh. it's at like the edge of the island, and Central uh -huh. Park is in the middle. So I have. I'm not uh -huh. very close to that. Yeah, yeah. New York is huge. It takes a long time to walk that distance. So you're near Manhattan, is that right? 
Yeah, I am in Manhattan. In Manhattan. But I'm at the edge of the island in Financial District, where the World Trade Center and 9/11 ah. memorials are. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and you have a, a very interesting story. So uh, before New York, you were in Boston, and before that, you originally are from Iran. If I'm uh, understanding this correctly. Uh, walk us through this. Like you, you've studied at several different universities. You've traveled the world. Would love to hear how it all started. Yeah, I mean, it all started in high school. I always loved math, so I, I was, I was very much involved in a lot of like different extracurricular courses around mathematics and statistics, and that's why uh, I chose electrical engineering communication for college for the college degree. I got my Bachelor of Science in Ferdowsi University of Mashhad in Iran. That's the city that I'm from. It's, the east, it's in the eastern part of Iran. Um, and I studied in electrical engineering because to me, that was the field within engineering that was mainly using mathematics, mathematics and the statistics compared to physics or the mm. more applied sciences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In retrospect, I should have gone to theoretical math <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of engineering, but at least I think I found my way uh, along the way. And then I moved to Boston for my, actually I moved to Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, mm. for my master's degree in bioengineering, because I was very interested at the time in neuroscience. That's a big shift from electrical engineering to bioengineering. What, what made you choose, make that change? Well, neuroscience is very much, um, so again, bioengineering have different, uh, d- different fields. There are different fields within bioengineering. There's biomechanics, bioelectrics, and biochemistry. I chose bioelectrics. So it mm. was very similar to electrical engineering. The only difference was that the application was in biomedical fields at that mm. time, the neural signals. So you're basically using the same statistical methods like signal processing or machine learning or probability theory, but to analyze brain signals, mm. not to analyze like electrical data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So uh, you made the shift and, and was it a good move? How did you feel? It was, I think, because the application, again, the biomedical applications are really challenging, which makes it very interesting. I really love that shift. And mm-hmm. I think I learned that you don't have to be afraid of just changing course mm-hmm. uh, because you might find something that is more interesting. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And so you completed your master's in Tehran. And what happened after that? Uh, I think at that time, I was just trying to decide whether I want to pursue a PhD program, PhD degree or not. And I applied for a couple of universities. I got an admission from Northeastern University from Boston. Mm-hmm. And I realized, okay, that's a good challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not only I have to change the country, uh, my country of residency, also I can pursue a higher degree. So I moved to the United States. Okay. And what, uh, what was the PhD in? My PhD was also in bioengineering. Um, mm. My advisor was in electrical engineering department, but most of his projects and funding were in bio, mm-hmm. uh, bio fields, specifically neuroscience and brain-computer interface. Mm-hmm. That's why, although I was in the bio- bioengineering department, I was working with an advisor who was in electrical engineering department. Okay, so your past continues, right? Your bachelor degree. All right, so bioengineering, uh, neural science, um, and if you were to describe bioengineering, especially the electrical part to somebody, what is it all about? Um, It's about signal processing (laughs) and machine learning, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. at least the area that I was involved with. Uh, Our brain, even our body, the muscular uh, our muscles, there are so many data that you can collect from a human body, mm-hmm. specifically brain, but not excluding the brain. And there's a lot that you can do on that data, not only mm-hmm. to understand the biology, but also to use that data in order to help people that uh, 
have any sort of disability, whether it's um, visual disability, brain disability, or physical disability. And that's basically everything is based on signal processing, processing that data, and then machine learning, which means coming up with prescriptive analysis based on that signal processing portion. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content, and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Um, and uh, can you share with us what was the main topic of your research for your PhD? Yeah, I was doing both signal processing and machine learning. I did analyze a lot of uh, EEG data to understand the changes in brain signal when somebody is mm -hmm. meditating and mm -hmm. what is the change, changes in EEG. Um, and also I use machine learning to develop brain computer interfaces. Um, mm -hmm. brain computer interfaces are basically tools that you train to collect the data from human's brain and then translate that into a robot to perform the action that the human wants. For example, mm -hmm. you want to move your arm. There is a signal going on into your motor cortex. And in brain computer interface device can detect that and moves a robot arm. So mm -hmm. you're basically moving that arm using your brain without even moving your arm. Wow. My project was uh, detecting attention signal just mm -hmm. to help people with uh, disabilities who cannot move mm -hmm. their hands to build a brain, brain computer interface keyboard. keyboard. So... Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, I can show you A, B, C, D, E, F, mm -hmm. and you are actually looking for the letter E. Mm -hmm. When you see E, there is an attention signal in your brain. This is what I'm looking for. Oh. Our device could capture that attention signal and type E for you. Basically, So you you're not even doing anything. You just see the right one. You don't even have to point with your eyes or anything like that. You just see the right one, and because you have the the letter in your head already, something different happens when it. Wow. Yep. That's so cool. Wow. So and you and I'm I'm guessing because we technologically we're still not there. You were doing non-invasive, um, like signal uh, reading, like it was with like is that called the EEG device when you have like this all these sensors on your head, but there's no surgery, there's no like invasive uh, connection with your brain. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, it okay. was mainly non-invasive. I, in my master's, I was working on some uh, MEMS technology to build uh, biosensors that you can actually impl implant in someone's brain. Mm. Uh, but I, I changed my course instead of going to that like MEMS field, I moved to more machine learning and signal processing. Okay, how, how accurate are these EEG devices? Um, I mean, depends on what type of signal you're trying to collect. So the signals such as attention and visual or motor cortex are pretty strong. You should mm -hmm. be able to actually collect them with a high level of accuracy using EEG. Mm -hmm. But then you go into cognition. How can I understand someone's behavior or emotion using mm -hmm. their brain signal? I don't think EEG can help you that much. Okay, okay, gotcha. And oh, very interesting field. Uh, very interesting. So what kind of machine learning techniques did you use for processing that uh, those signals? Yeah, we use a, a lot of... Um, first of all, I think the biggest challenge is dimension, pairs of dimensionality. So mm -hmm. you, when you want to train a classifier, you there's you have a limited amount of time to train a classifier. It means that you have a lo low number of observations and the data, ha the dimension of the data is real high. So 
So using different algorithms to reduce the dimensionality is key. So we use a lot of that. And then after that, we did kernel analysis and classification theory to classify the brain signal. For example, in this example of uh, brain-computer interface keyword, keyboard, uh, you when you see A, B, C, those are the those are the uh, data points that you, you is not your desired data points. So in the class, the cla- the target class is zero for them. Mm-hmm. But when you mm-hmm. see D, which is the letter you're looking for, it should be target class one. So mm-hmm. first, separating that data and building a classifier to train on these like training data set, so that next time that you're looking for the data that is your desired letter, the classifier can actually detect that and classify that accurately. So a lot of classification, regression analysis, and also basic signal processing work to remove noise, clean the data, and again, reduce the dimension of the data. Okay. Wow. There's a lot there. <laughs> Let's go through those uh, step by step. So uh, curse of dimensionality. Can you please uh, re- refresh my memory on what is the curse of dimensionality? Yeah, it's generally when your dimensions are more than your observations. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means the covariance matrix. <laughs> you cannot calculate the inverse of the covariance matrix, obviously. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is to reduce the di- dimension of the data. So there are many transformations that you can do uh, on your covariance matrix, you can do regularization, you can do shrinkage, which means that you shrink your covariance matrix values toward the pooled in average. So your eigenvalues are actually like uh, not all zero. So you can actually calculate the inverse of the covariance matrix. And regularization as well, you want to shift the values of your covariance matrix against toward the pooled in average. Uh, with that, this, this, all, this is also easy to you. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna sound funny. Can you refresh my memory, memory, please, on what is a covariance matrix? I know it might sound really obvious to you, but I, I need a refresher. Sure. I mean, um, EEG data is you have a Gaussian assumption on an EEG data. You, we assume that EEG is Gaussian. It might not be. Mm-hmm. But you, that's the that's the basic of machine learning, right? You mm-hmm. have to assume that my data has this a specific form, so I can use this model to solve it. And for EEG data, oftentimes you have that Gaussian assumption. Mm-hmm. So when so normal you, normally distributed data exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a normal. It has a normal distribution, but it's multivariate, right? Mm-hmm. So when you try to solve a multivariant Gaussian model, you have to uh, solve it using least a square method, mm-hmm. which is the quad, quad which is basically it, it, it's not a linear, yeah, you cannot right. solve it in a linear form. That's why when you actually want to solve a Gaussian model using least a square method, you need to calculate the inverse of the covariance matrix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then your dimensions are higher than your observations means that the eigenvalues in your covariance matrix are mostly zero and it mm-hmm. means that their covariance is not inversible mm-hmm. and that's when you have to reduce the dimension of the data to make sure that you can calculate the inverse of the covariance uh, okay and so you could use something like principal component analysis to reduce your dimensionality you can do that. Uh, we did, again, there are multiple ways that I can do it. Uh, we did regularization and shrinkage in this specific project. It's all, it's all about which methodology gives you the best accuracy. For us, this methodology, regularization and shrinkage, provided the best accuracy. Mm-hmm. How can you describe regular, regularization? Yeah. So, regularization means that you're basically you're looking at your again your covariance matrix. In, this is just an example. It can mm-hmm. be any analysis, right? Mm-hmm. You have a matrix, and you want to regularize matrix. Means that it means that you want to shift the value within that matrix toward the pooled-in average, mm-hmm. so that your eigenvalues are not mainly zero or most mm-hmm. of them are zeros. That's mm-hmm. regularization. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, understand. Okay, um, and then you also mentioned um, you would 
build a classifier. What kind of classifiers did you build in this project? I have to remember. I think we did kernel density estimation, mm-hmm. which uh, which means that you're basically what is a kernel, right? It's just if you calculate, if you plot all your data points in the two vector um, mm-hmm. like uh, plot, you can actually draw a circle around your two different your different classes. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that's what that's what's called kernel radius kernel analysis, which means that I'm going to design kernels and the shape of the kernel is a circle. Mm-hmm. So there are different ways that you can build kernels. It can be a stochastic or it cannot be non-circular. Mm-hmm. We use ca- circular kernel analysis and based on that, basically found the center of the kernel and the radius of the kernel. And then mm-hmm. it, we trained our data based on that kernel density estimation. And then when you have a new data point, we just see where that data point resides, whether it's kernel type one or kernel two. And based on that, we did the class. Okay. So you would use something uh, like a, ra- a radial basis function. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. It's interesting. A lot of this is coming back to it because uh, we teach this in our machine learning course and uh, we did uh, kernel SVMs, for example, and the RBFs was there. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Thank you very much. That that was a that was a nice uh, dive into the technical details, and it's it's interesting to hear that uh, a lot of these machine learning concepts that you could be using like for marketing or for business or for I don't know some some other applications, uh, predictive model maintenance and things like that can actually be used to understand better what is going on in the human brain, and th- that's that's very very interesting. Uh, one, one that we don't normally encounter in, uh, uh, like, for example, business or in other industri- industry applications is signal processing. That's something that you you did use quite a lot. And that probably comes from your electrical engineering background more than from machine learning. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say all industries. I feel like probably finance uses a lot of signal processing, maybe a stochastic signal mm-hmm. processing, mm-hmm. not like linear or autoregressive, um, but not in marketing, which is my field. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you could give us just like a few words on signal processing, like what is the, what is the essence and what is maybe some of the, the basic uh, types of signal processing? Like I know, for example, moving average is a type of signal processing, but that's really basic, right? So w- what are your comments on, on that? So for people who haven't encountered signal processing in, in, the, in their careers? So my experience have been mainly on like uh, deterministic and non-deterministic signal uh, processing. I think that's the basic, the highest level of classification, right? Because mm-hmm. if it's deterministic, then you can, moving average is one way of modeling that signal. Autoregressive models are one way of uh, modeling that. Mm-hmm. Um, Kalman filtering is another way that you can mm-hmm. actually model a deterministic and then when it's undeterministic or a stochastic, then you go into, again, you can use autoregressive by some a stochastic autoregressive analysis, which has a stochastic a component to it. Um, those are the type of signal processing that I'm familiar with, but mainly on the deterministic data and non-stochastic ones. Okay. Well, what's the difference between deterministic and stochastic signals? Yeah, so you as, in a deterministic one, you assume that the uh, pattern in your signal doesn't change in time so you have uh-huh. you're repeating the same pattern uh-huh. and in stochastic you have that a stochastic assumption that your data is not deterministic with time and it's changing examples like, of that is whether mm-hmm. a stock market okay gas or oil prices like a, a heart heartbeat would be deterministic is repeats yeah. EEG also deterministic, right? It just you just there's a lot of variety in it, but it's if we if you were able to classify all the variety, it would be deterministic. Yep. Um, a Brownian motion would be stochastic, right? Because you don't know where it will go, you can't predict where it's going to go. Yeah. yeah, that's my guess. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but basically, uh, I get I get your point. So stock market would be stochastic. Thank you. Very very insightful. History will be a stochastic. <laughs> History. Well, some people say history repeats itself. So. I know that's not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the very that's that's a problem, right? We try to oversimplify very complicated mm-hmm. concepts. So mm-hmm. history is one, 
actually he says the most stochastic signal you can imagine because it's a combination of stochastic human data. I am mm-hmm. stochastic, you are stochastic, and our collective behavior defines history. So it's mm-hmm. really the most stochastic data you can ever imagine mm-hmm. because then you... The only, the only reason I can make it deterministic is I can predict every individual human's behavior, which you can. <laughs> hmm. But what what do you say when when you know some psychologists say, for example, that or economists say that it's really hard to predict the behavioral patterns of one individual human, but it's much easier to predict the patterns of of like a, a group of humans, or the bigger the group, the easier it is to predict like the the group of mind and how people are going to behave and think. So don't you think that maybe if one you put a lot of stochastic individuals together in in total it might the, the combined system might actually be less stochastic than the individuals themselves yeah I, I definitely agree so again i i agree for building analytics on mm-hmm. human behavior and find a group met, like mentality of a group or yeah. as an as a society where are we going and how different groups are interacting with each other it's very difficult to come up with prescriptive analysis. Mm. So uh, I'll give you a very simple example why a stock market is a stochastic. So if I can build a very good model that will give you the price of Apple stock tomorrow, you're going to buy and sell based on that assumption. So your buying and selling that stock will change that prediction. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So it's by nature stochastic. Even if mm. you can predict it, the action you make based on that prediction makes it again will change that prediction. So it's like a paradox. Exactly. It's a, the same thing goes with history. Even if we can cluster and then try to do something, people yeah. will then behave and react based on that, and oh, then okay. again it becomes unpredictable. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. That's a that's a very simple proof, right? Like. Uh, of the theorem very cool thank you very much um well that was a very interesting dive into your um research and uh, your academic background let's talk about your career so um at which point did you decide to uh pursue a career uh following your phd in this space why didn't you stay in academia why did you decide to uh, move into the industry yeah, <laughs> I I can say it's a it was a combination of chance and um, <laughs> confusion, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that's something that most PhD students deal with at the end of their PhD. They have mm-hmm. this question whether I want to stay in academia or want to go to industry. I had the same dilemma as well, and actually at that time I was looking for postdoc postdoc positions. Uh, because I wanted to stay in academia, specifically in Europe. I went to leave U.S. at that time. Um, and then I thought, I can't leave without having some experience in industry. And I found an internship in Visual IQ, which was the la- company that I used to work before moving to Mass Mutual in Needham, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And that internship experience was very good. Um, because I think I was leading one of the most important projects they, were, they had at the time, not only to automate that, but also to building up, building algorithms. Mm-hmm. And I found that data science has a good combination of everything I'm interested in, mm-hmm. problem solving, programming, and also not putting yourself in a specific academic box. You can actually have a client-facing um position can talk to clients you should understand the business so there's a a lot of non-technical skills that i can learn Mm -hmm. if i work in data science versus if i stay in academia and that's that's when i decided to move to industry awesome uh what were you doing at visual iq are you able to share this this project that you said was one of the important projects that you were leading there sure i was working on marketing attribution projects so basically when um any Every company uses different channels to market. So you can use TV and radio. You can use paid search or paid social or organic social to advertise for your company. Mm-hmm. So um, mixed media marketing and marketing attributions are about attributing your conversions and sales to different marketing channels. 
And how to attribute that is very challenging because, for example, for t- if you see a TV ad and you go and buy a policy, there's no way that we can link that together, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. W- what are the modeling and methodology that can pick to attribute your sale to different marketing channels, offline and online, was a very interesting uh, theoretical problem. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. How did it feel moving from working on brain-computer interface to and meditation and uh, like signal processing to marketing, which is like completely two different worlds, even though some of the perhaps, uh, like a lot of the skills are transferable in data science, but the, the underlying essence uh, is different. Did you, did you feel uh, like, how did you feel? I'm just curious. It was definitely a change. Um... In academia, a lot of concepts are very abstract. It's not practical. So mm-hmm. again, brain computer interface is different. It's like, it's very different. You know what you're trying to do. You want to move a robot arm, but most academic concepts are very abstract. Mm-hmm. But in industry and in marketing, things are actually pretty pragmatic. I want mm-hmm. to increase my number of customers by 10%. Mm-hmm. I want to reduce costs in this part of operation. I want to retain my customers. How can I find customers that are most likely to lapse? And I reach out to them. So very mm-hmm. pragmatic use cases. And so, and then oftentimes there's no solution. Somebody tells you, this is my business problem. Go figure out how you want to solve it. And that's where the interesting part mm-hmm. comes in that you have to just come up with a hypothesis. You have to test that hypothesis. And then the last and most important part is to really understand how the, how does this hypothesis will work out when you actually implement it in the business so it's not it's very different as it's not only technical there's so many different factors in it Mm -hmm. that just makes it way more challenging at least for me okay understood all right so and after visual IQ, where you were for you did the internship and then you were quite quickly went from intern to data scientist to senior data scientist in a matter of nine months and then five months then you move to mass mutual where you are the head of data science uh in the customer journey division tell us a bit about that maybe let's start by what uh, tell us about mass mutual what is this uh what is the mission of this company uh mass mutual is massachusetts mutual financial corporation so mass mutual provides a variety of financial products most people know mass mutual because of the life insurance product which is one of the biggest bucket of business for mass mutual but mass mutual provides variety of financial products such as disability insurance annuity different financial products and also um, retirement services um I, I, I think Mass Mutual as a whole is, first of all, it's a mutual company. So and all policyholders have a share in the company. Mm. And that's actually, that was one of the reasons that I accepted the offer. To mm. me, not having a private owner and be, or you know, even working in a public company is actually very interesting. That you're fulfilling, more with, fulfilling. Yeah, you're working for your policyholders. Mm-hmm. And I think the mission of the company is really great because these financial products help people to protect the ones they love. College can be afforded, retirements can be planned, and you can plan for the worst case scenario, which is disability or death. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just that provides a service to the society that is actually much needed. And I really like the work that Mass Mutual is doing for the society. Yeah, and it's a very big company. I'm just uh, looking up you. The total of um, seven thousand employees in in US, a total of internationally ten thousand six hundred employees, was founded uh, over uh, about a hundred and seventy years ago, and the revenue in two thousand sixteen, according to Wikipedia. Uh, was or no, according to the Mass Mutual website, was twenty nine point six billion. So it's a huge company, and uh, it would be a very responsible role to be the head data scientist in one of the divisions at the company. Tell us about like your um, role. Like, what what is 
what is uh, maybe how it's structured? So we were talking about the podcast at the start. You have data science and data analytics, and then in data science you have three domains. Can you paint this picture for us, please, so we know exactly or roughly how it all works? Sure. We are a part of the the DSA department, which is data science uh, and analytics. Uh, and it includes data governance, data enterprise architecture, data science and data analytics. My department, which is data science and data analytics, uh, include both analytical teams and data science teams. And data science uh, itself is divided into different domains depend- depending on what type of projects we accept and who we work with, with, the, with within the company. We have cybersecurity, uh, the folks that are generally working in security and finance, uh, sorry, security domain. Uh, we have investment and finance, data science domain, and those folks may mainly work with investment management, management team and the finance department. We have risk and product domain, and they usually work on mortality models, pricing, actuarial, and all the different like underwriting processes, which is a big part of mass mutual business. And my domain uh, is customer journey. So we are involved in every level of customer journey from awareness, consideration, purchase. After we have a customer, there's all these post-issue operations, retention, loyalty, and making sure that contentment is high and also uh, cross-sale opportunities for our existing customers. And finally, claim, which is Mm -hmm. basically that post-issue operations efficiency and also marketing and sales before we we want to attract a customer. Wow, that's a huge huge area of responsibility. So you would work quite closely with uh, the marketing team, the support team, um, the, well, basically the marketing team and the support team, right? Yes, we almost work with every part of the organization. I mean, it's it's great, but it's also the challenge because we're stretched uh, yeah. to, because they have to work with everyone. So we had the prioritization and making sure that we focus on the most important business problems is really key. Otherwise, we will be buried under a lot okay. of projects. Gotcha. Um, how many people do you have on your team? Yeah, I so just I didn't move to Mass Mutual as the head of data science. I was a lead data scientist and individual contributor for two years before I moved to my current position mm-hmm. as the head of data science customer journey. I started with a team of at that time I think six. Mm-hmm. Now we're 13 within mm-hmm. a year. <laughs> okay, well. <wow. laughs> That's impressive growth, and it's also impressive that with just 13 people, you can support an organization that employs 10,000 people. You must be so busy. <laughs> <laughs> we are very busy. <laughs> okay, okay, gotcha. Um, so I have quite a few questions here. The first one would be on um, your your uh, progression. So it's it's impressive to see how yeah, even starting from Visual IQ, it took you, you know, seven months as an intern, nine months as a data scientist, five months as a senior data scientist, then uh, Mass Mutual, two years, three months as a lead data scientist, and then uh, head uh, head of data science customer journey, and which where you've been for like one, just over one year. So very rapid progression through your career, right? From individual, from an intern to individual computer co- contributor to a senior to a new company to then to head of a whole division for a giant organization. Um, can you tell us, like, what? how did that feel? You know, sometimes people stay in the same role for a decade or maybe five years, but you're con- you were constantly going up and up and up. Like, what was driving you and um, what are, like, maybe the the positives and the negative, the pros and the cons of such rapid career growth as a data scientist? That's an interesting question. Actually, those are the things that I think about constantly myself, especially when you move from a technical role to a management role. Uh, That's a big change. And that means that you have to say goodbye to some of your technical Mm -hmm. skills. It's like inevitable, right? Mm -hmm. And we are in a very highly technical field. I think 
like 88% of people in data science have a postgraduate degree or some sort of master's or PhD. So it's a very highly educated and highly technical field. It's very important to have your technical skills. And when you move to a management role, you know that it's inevitable that you might lose some of those. So I would say that is something, I, I don't think that's definitely a concern or a bad thing, but it's a reality that you have to accept and you have to be prepared for. Mm-hmm. But there are much more to learn. Um, gaining all the soft skills, knowing, understanding how to delegate effectively, how to lead effectively. Mm-hmm. Those are really things that you won't learn until you become a technical lead or a people manage manager. Um, communication, learning how to listen. Uh, being more nurturing. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. a lot of like skills that you can actually use in your regular life. So those are the good things in moving mm-hmm. up into your career because you're learning that. But I think that you also have to be aware of as your responsibilities change, you cannot like gain a lot of expertise in a specific area, which can mm-hmm. actually be very, to, you can use that into your, to your advantage in your career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, do you ever regret the the move into management, and do you miss the the ability to just poke around in an algorithm and spend three days building a regression or something like that? I don't regret what I miss. The <laughs> 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 different answer to the different <laughs> adjective, I think. Yeah. Um. Again, I don't regret it because I'm learning and growing. Definitely, yeah. but I do miss technical work a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm coming from years of <laughs> technical yeah. work and just moving to a management position has been challenging. If somebody is in a similar uh, dilemma as you were, is there anything that can be done for a manager to still maintain this technical uh, expertise and not give it up completely? Yeah, I I do. So I, for example, every day after work, I I solve an algorithm problem. I use Uh different softwares. I don't know, for example, LeetCode or HackerRank, different uh, sites that you can actually go and solve an algorithm problem. To me, it's a good exercise because first I use Python, so I practice my programming. Yeah, yeah. And also, it makes you engaged in actually solving an algorithm problem. I'm thinking about may- maybe also including building a model or s- solving a modeling problem as well. I know LeetCode and HackerRank don't provide that opportunities, but there are other yeah. uh, other websites that can actually go and solve a simple data science problem using Python or R. So that's something that I personally do after my work. Uh, True work, I think there are managers who do both technical and management work. I think given the size of my team, I haven't had that option yet. Mm. But maybe in the future, I can manage the team in a way that I can also do some of, I can take some of the technical responsibilities. Okay. Amazing. Um, speaking of managing teams, um, can you share some some things that you've learned managing a data science team of six and then thirteen people? Like, what are some of the main challenges, and uh, what are some of the the tips you can share with uh, with people who are considering becoming managers or who have recently become managers? Yeah, I think the best. I think the most important thing is really. First, as a manager, learning the increasing your business acumen and understanding the business as as best as you can. And then the second layer is to develop your team to also understand the business. Uh, and I think that has been a challenge, especially when you have a company that is huge, like you have 7,000 different people working in the company, different types of business, different financial products, really understanding the business is really key because you can actually frame the work of your team to be aligned with the strategical goal of the company. Mm-hmm. And then the second layer is to make sure that your team also understand the business and have that vision and direction to 
I don't want to work on 100 different things. Let's understand what are the big business questions. Is it a, a strategic quest, a question for the company? And let's focus our attention on that. That to me has been the biggest challenge. And I'm learning even now on that. I'm trying to develop my team and push them toward that direction as well. Okay. And tips? <laughs> tips are generally, I think, build on that business acumen side, building relationship and communication mm-hmm. is key and also building your influence, right? Mm-hmm. So basically asking, building relationship with the right people and asking the right questions and coming up with effective solution is key. But also when you talk about people management, I think communication is really important, but also being empathetic to people's needs, especially this year, it has been very challenging Mm -hmm. to be motivated and keep people motivated. Mm -hmm. That's what you have to as a manager. Not only you have to work on yourself, but you have to make sure your team is motivated. Mm -hmm. It's difficult when you have a team in New York, they're all stuck in one bedroom apartments trying to work from home. Yeah. Knowing how to listen and how to relate to people's problems has been key. I think that's very important to manage people. And also at the same time, making sure that you push people to be the best version of they want and keep them motivated and motivate them to do the uh, and work on high uh, important projects. Mm-hmm. Would you say that management is in data sciences for everyone or some people should really consider it and decide if that's what they want? Hmm. It's tough for me to tell. Honestly, I think humans are capable of learning anything. So it's difficult for me to say that it's not for everyone. I think Mm -hmm. if you are interested, you can learn the skills to Mm -hmm. be an effective manager. It all Mm -hmm. goes to whether you're interested or not. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, then you can learn and you should just be motivated to learn. Awesome. Gotcha. Thank you. And uh, you also mentioned before the podcast that, um, well, we've got an exciting surprise for our listeners. Uh, you're hiring at Mass Mutual, specifically into your team. Tell us a bit about the roles and the candidates that you're looking for. So if someone listening to this podcast is interested, um, would be able to go out and apply. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a, actually a lead data scientist position. So we're looking for somebody with experience. Um, I think the job requirement is seven years of experience, but we include some of the graduate degree as a part of the work experience. Um, so I definitely want to have a diversity of candidates coming in and I want to make sure that he, uh, I want to emphasize on people who are familiar with the industry, but also I don't want to exclude anyone who is not familiar because I think people can learn the industry uh, very well if they, uh, they are really technically as strong. Um, so this position, you... This position is basically lead, which means that people, uh, the per, the the the, the, fi- the candidate have to lead multiple projects at the same time. So it's very important to be agile and also be accountable. And also there's an opportunity to lead junior data scientists because as, we, as the portfolio of lead data scientists grow and they have the multiple projects and competing priorities, it's very important for to assign junior data scientists to those projects. So there's an opportunity to also exercise, uh, develop the leading, um, learning how to lead people. So it's an exciting opportunity and I would appreciate if people can apply and please reach out to me on LinkedIn if you're interested. Okay, so that's the best place to reach out to you directly on LinkedIn. Yes, I I don't have any other social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's, that's okay. Uh, So... I guess uh, people should just put a note that they heard about this on on the podcast, so you know uh, where where they heard it from. Um, and uh, does that person have to be in New York? Not really. I I think New England is preferred generally within a state of Massachusetts or New York, <laughs> just because mm-hmm. most of the team are in either in Boston, or Springfield, or New York. Uh, but given the current climate, I don't want to exclude anyone. <laughs> Awesome. Um, and speaking of the the current situation, how have you found 
Um, oh, before we continue, so anybody listening, if if you're interested, uh, make sure to find Asia on uh, LinkedIn and uh, apply uh, directly with her. Um, so I was I was asking, um, speaking of the current situation, how have you found it to how have you found it leading a data science team, specifically a data science team? I know a lot of managers are you know learning a lot of new things in in this coronavirus time, leading remote teams. But what what are like some of the specifics around leading a data science team remotely? Oh, it is challenging, especially mm. when you brainstorm and you want to actually like formulate or write an equation. It has been pretty challenging. Fortunately, there are tools that you can use. For example, there are, uh, we use these tools that you can actually write on a notebook and then you can share that notebook. So it's yeah. like, it looks like a regular notebook, but you can connect that to the computer and it's like you're oh, writing cool. on the screen. So that's good for brainstorming. But uh, again, I think the biggest challenge is that communication and keeping people motivated. Um, mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do that when you're not sitting in the same office or you cannot have lunch with your team or go for a coffee after work to make sure that you have that mm -hmm. relationship. And I had to onboard two people. We hired two people in the middle of pandemic. So I've never seen them. No oh, wow. people in my team, they, are, well, they were onboarded <laughs> digitally. Uh, so it's for them, I feel like they often might feel isolated, right? Because they never saw me or anybody else on the team versus somebody who used to work before the pandemic. So those are like challenges that face every day. It's just, um, <laughs> we just have to adapt. Hmm. And uh, when you like work on, uh, when your data science team works on a model, um, how do how do they do, how do they kind of like, work on do two two of the same people ever work on the same code how do they share that especially in a remote environment yeah so we do use github so it's mm. it's easier to you to actually work on the same code than you're using like um things like github or different platforms that can share codes I think the challenge is mainly when you're actually brainstorming, you're trying mm -hmm. to ideate. So you mm -hmm. think, oh, how about this? And you want to like easily walk to the board and start writing that down. And that's not yeah. an option when you're working remotely. Gotcha. All right. Um, you're quite, I can imagine you're busy managing this massive team. And then in the evenings, you also, after work, you also solve these data science challenges. Uh, how do you maintain work-life balance? Ah, good question. <laughs> um, I I think so. At the beginning of pandemic, I can say that I wasn't very much aware of all the changes and all the pressure. Uh, I think I focused a lot on work, and I tried to basically use work as a distraction to mm -hmm. <laughs> everything else that was going on. I can tell that that's not an effective way <laughs> of doing mm -hmm. things. Actually, it's important to understand your challenges, think about them, and come up with solutions outside of work to fix them. And once I, re I got to that point, I tried to really set up time that I'm going to close my laptop. There's no way that I'm going to <laughs> open the laptop after this specific time. Or I tried to avoid working on weekends, no matter what, except when there's some sort of a deadline or not. I try to like schedule time to run by the, by the river outside or different things outside of the work. So I have a full schedule of things that I should mm. do beside work to make sure that um, I have that distance. It's, it's key. I think mm. a lot of people are in the same situation as me that they're using work as a distraction, especially mm. now that we're working from home. There's not really align between your life and work anymore. Mm -hmm. You wake up mm -hmm. and you start working. Mm -hmm. It's very important not to get into that mindset. Work mm -hmm. is not a distraction from a stress, anxiety because of pandemic or economical situations. It's very important to find different hobbies for that. Awesome. How's that going for you to uh, not uh, to close your laptop at a certain hour? I, I tried, I, I'm trying the same thing. 
but it's so hard like you know like you close it and then you're like oh i still have to finish this well how, what's your success rate so far <laughs> um i've had good progress <laughs> so it's getting better i yeah. think it's important to have a full schedule yeah. for other things so sign up for yoga classes sign up make sure that you have an alarm for running or exercising outside i like yeah. sign up for some galleries in new york that i want to see even in the weekday which i didn't yeah. used to so i basically schedule the rest of my day to make sure i definitely have something to do so i have to close my laptop awesome that's good that's good advice um and one more thing i uh one impo very important topic uh i thought i think we should touch on is um women in data science so uh it's uh You've had tremendous success. Um, were there any obstacles along the way? And what can you share with um, our female listeners who are, you know, excited about data science, but they can see that this is indeed a, like a lot of STEM is a male dominated space. What kind of encouragement can you share with them? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that you realize very early on when you go into tech that there are more men than women. Um, I just think that, so you can't deny that, but I don't think you should look at it as a roadblock or a mm -hmm. problem either. Um, the, the most important thing is to have confidence um, mm -hmm. and not only confidence to speak up, but also confidence to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I think as a woman, you don't have to have insecurities about asking for help, asking for mm -hmm. guidance, because you think that what if people judge me because I'm a woman and I cannot perform as well as a man. These are mm -hmm. all in our heads. <laughs> mm -hmm. So really working on those insecurities, making sure that you believe in yourself, you're speaking up, mm -hmm. and not only in meetings, but also to with your team, not being afraid of saying, I want to meet with this influential pe person in my company uh, or questioning the status quo that I think this project is not important. We should divert our focus to this other project. Mm -hmm. So being that comfort, having that confidence to speak up is very important. And also, I think you just have to have a passion about what you're doing and not being afraid of... Um, making mistakes because people mm -hmm. do mistakes you just have to learn from them and move on and i think again women have maybe more difficulty dealing with mistakes because we think that they're being judged maybe more harshly which is a reality i'm not trying to say that reality doesn't happen but we should basically say i'm going to do my best there's going to be mistakes along the way i'm just going to learn from that be accountable for those mistakes and just move on. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, to make sure that you play fair and a square. And uh, again, at the end of the day, it's all about confidence. Mm. I, I love your comments about asking for help because everybody asks for help. Like I, I ask for help all the time. You know, like everybody, regardless of uh, your gender or background, uh, you should be comfortable asking for help. And And if you're being judged for asking for help, then you should ask yourself, should, is that really a company you want to be working for? Exactly. And actually, you can lead by example. You can basically say, I'm a woman leader and I'm going to speak up and ask for help. So you actually lead by example to all the other women in the company that it's not a sign of weakness. If you need mm -hmm. help, you can mm -hmm. ask for it. And then even if the company doesn't have that culture, you help building that culture for the company. Yeah, that's great advice. You spoke about confidence, uh, having the confidence to speak up, to to change, uh, you know, to challenge what the company is working on, to the confidence to ask for help. How do you build that confidence? Ah. <laughs> hmm, that's a tough one. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I was trying to think about how Again, I don't think I have I have gained that level of confidence that I want to myself. Yeah. It's it's a day to day a struggle, I would say. You just I think 
being self-aware is very important, understanding your weaknesses and strength and just double downing on your strength and also work to develop your weaknesses. Once you see yourself that you're actually growing and developing, you are going to build that confidence. Um, I'm still trying to build that for myself because I do, I am self-aware about my weaknesses. Yeah. And I'm trying to improve on those. And when I see progress, I'm like, okay, good. Now I can just be more confident in myself. So just self-awareness, I think it's, it's the key to build that confidence that's, over time. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, example or a good, uh, good advice. Uh, self-awareness to build confidence. Um, uh, Asiya, I have one more question for you. Um, before we wrap up, and that is, where do you think the future of data science is going for people who are looking to build a career in this field? What should they be preparing for in the next two to three years? Well, I think the world is getting more and more data-driven. And the key is that now people are generating more data. Everybody and the, all the population in this unit, most of the populations are generating data every day. So the data is only growing. Given that the data is growing, the need for data scientists and data analytics and data engineers only going to grow. I don't think that there is any limit really in the demand for data science in any time in the near future. Um, some of the fields might get a different name, right? A lot of data scientists are now machine learning engineers or machine learning researchers. So the name changes, but really what you do doesn't change. And the demand for this field is only going to increase. Um, but with that, so that's good that there's demand. But given that now all the industries from healthcare to mm, business management to finance to government, everyone is going to need data scientists and data analytics resources. It's very difficult to uh, know, okay, what skills do I learn? Because based on the industry, you need a different sets of skills. If you work in finance, you have to be a very good technical, you have to be very fluent in a stochastic processing. If you want to work for, let's say, for uh, AWS in Amazon, you have to have a very foundational infrastructure knowledge, although you're doing machine learning on top of that data. So my advice is that choose a field and in that field, make sure that you all are always on the edge of that industry and that field and you're pushing the envelope and you're questioning the status quo and you are always on the border of that specific industry given that it's very difficult to be a knowledge expert now in data science in every possible field. That's the, the researcher speaking in you, pushing the borders of, <laughs> of uh, what humanity knows. Great advice. How do you choose a field? Ah, that's... Um, I, I think a lot of that comes from uh, graduate per, so college. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're very much interested in pure statistics and pure probability theory, you know that you're most likely want to be a researcher. I don't know, either in Microsoft or go to finance and doing quantitative finance or very theoretical mathematics. Or actuarial, uh, maybe. Exactly, exactly. So really focusing on those fields is more important and maybe finding an internship in those fields so you can examine whether actually that's what you're looking for. Generally taking advantage of internship through college is really important because that's the time that I can actually work in multiple industries and find the industry that you're interested in. To me personally, if I never had that internship in Visual IQ, I wouldn't be where I am. Before that, I had no idea about the application of data science in marketing. And I just learned from that by that internship. So that's very important. I think that's a way that you can actually have different experiences and pick a field and just double down on that field. Fantastic. Asya, it has been a pleasure. It's been super exciting to speak with you. Uh, before you go, please tell us what's, uh, what are the best places. You already mentioned LinkedIn. Is that the best place to get in touch with you? For our listeners? 
Yes. I mean, I, I don't have social media, unfortunately, so I cannot provide like a Facebook or Twitter account. Uh, LinkedIn, it would be the best place. That's perfect. Really. That's perfect. And uh, one final question, just a quick one. What's a book that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, for data science, again, I, I, I'm really interested in the theoretical aspect of data science. For me, the go-to book has always been the Pattern Recognition and Machine Learning by Christopher Bishop. Uh-huh. Um, honestly, I've never had a question that I could find the answer <laughs> in that book. It's really comprehensive from okay. graph theory to neural network to basic classification and regression analysis. Gotcha. Pattern Recognition in Machine Learning by Christopher Bishop. Yes. Awesome. Well, Asia, thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, sharing your time and insights with us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for sharing this hour with us. And uh, I hope you got a lot of value out of this podcast, got some useful insights, and were uh, excited to hear about Osia's story, how she went through academia and her bachelor's, master's, and PhD, and all the exciting research she's done, and also that move to industry and how she is uh, progressing through her career and uh, leading people in the space of data science. My favorite part personally was our discussion about stochastic versus deterministic signals. Uh, it was a good refresher of, uh, of that world. And we don't often uh, talk about it in data science because for instance, like in marketing uh, or in many other areas of data science, it's just, you just don't work with signals. But it was exciting to see that you can use signal processing both in um, brain computer interface and at the same time you can use it in financial uh, modeling. So there are areas where data science will overlap with signal processing, and it's important to be aware that these are two uh, separate or slightly separate domains uh, that you might actually be interested in if you've never tried signal processing or never look into it. That might be something you're passionate about. Or if like OCA, you're coming from an electrical engineering background where there's a lot of signal processing, those skills can be applied in certain areas where data science is also used. As always, you can find uh, the show notes for this episode at superdatasense.com slash 415. That's superdatasense.com slash 415. We'll link to Osea's uh, research papers there. You can read them. Uh, also, Osea said she'll send through some more information on curse of dimensionality and some other things that we spoke about. So that might be useful to you too. Uh, and of course, there you'll find the URL to Osea's LinkedIn where you can connect with her and specifically if you're looking uh, to apply for that job that they're currently hiring for i would uh, encourage you to connect with osia and let her know as as, you're, as uh, she mentioned we're there <laughs> not we're there uh, at mass mutual they're looking for a an advanced data scientist or lead data scientist and uh if you enjoyed this podcast uh, and you know somebody who could be inspired by it, somebody maybe who's in the world of academia or who's excited about signal processing and is considering data science, send the link to them. It's very easy to share this podcast. Just send the link, superdatascience.com slash 415. On that note, it was very exciting to have you here and I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing. Happy analyzing.